There was a story told of a country church on a cold winter morning. By the time the morning service was to begin, only one man was in the church. It never happened before in this church, but it happened once in a winter morning in a country church. And the pastor said to the man who turned up, well, it's a cold morning. Looks like everyone has slept in. Do you want to go home or should I preach the sermon? And the man replied, Pastor, I'm a farmer. Every morning when I go to feed the chickens and only one comes to me, I still feed the chickens. And so the pastor took that as a yes and he mounted the pulpit and he delivered an hour sermon. He doesn't hold back, preach with passion. And at the end, he asked the man what he thought. And the man said, when I go to feed the chickens in the morning, when only one comes, I don't give it the whole bucket. <laughs> Judging at this morning attendance, I think I can give you the whole bucket. But I can assure you it's a small bucket, so don't panic. It's a small bucket. Well, it's fantastic to have a combined service where we try our best to get everyone involved with the young ones playing the, the instrument and the Korean church that is using our church here in the afternoon. We try to get them involved as part of the family as well. This morning, I thought since it's a baby dedication service, I used a story in the Bible about a lady by the name of Hannah. It's a familiar story to most believers because Hannah dedicated her son to God. And so I want to use this occasion to share with you this particular story. I'll come to that. About 45 years ago, there was an American psychiatrist by the name of M. Scott Peck. He wrote a book that became a bestseller called The Road Less Traveled. He wasn't a Christian before he wrote that book. He was a Zen Buddhist. But after, he, after that, he became a Christian. And the book begins with three words. And then the entire book is trying to unpack the three words. And the three words simply says, Life is difficult. He said, this is a great truth. One of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, that life is difficult. Life is, is no longer difficult when you are able to accept that. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters to you. And then he went on and unpacked these three words called life is difficult. 
a theologian called Carl Truman. He said, as humans are at once both righteous and sinful, so human existence is at once both heartbreaking and hilarious. Because Christians believe that we live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, and therefore everything is imperfect. Everything. Whether you get into your marriage relationship, the longer you live with the person, you, you realize how imperfect the person is. And not just that, it's about yourself as well. I always tell people, enter marriage not with a magnifying glass. Enter marriage with a mirror. Because that's the pla best platform to discover who you are. Not just the other person. And Jesus says this too. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Anybody can dispute that? In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Life is difficult, you have to accept that. My WhatsApp profile words there, it's got the, the best mind-altering drug is truth. The best mind-altering drug is truth. But of course, truth is stranger than fiction now. But truth we have to hold on to. Because truth is what will really set us free. And what M. Scott Peck basically is trying to say is that life is difficult. Accept that thesis. Accept it. Then you can overcome it. And the story of Hannah is a woman who is deeply troubled. And her life is full of anxiety and frustration. Her dream was not fulfilled. She only had dreamed of having a child. But she was barren. She has no child. Her dream was shattered. You know, the dreams we have for ourselves are always never big enough. I don't know about you. Some of us, we are great in doing that, isn't it? We set out what exactly we want to be, and then we charge our path towards wanting to be what we have always wanted to be. We are that kind of people, some of us. I know of uh, someone's daughter who wanted to be a gynecologist, and she do every means, cannot get into the medicine. She do everything possible, and end up now she's a gynecologist. You know, some people are like that. Some just go along, not as, as single-minded or focused. Some just drift along. Some just spontaneously respond to things in life. But having said that, no matter what dreams you have for yourself, it's never big enough. Uh, uh, God's dreams for us are always bigger than we can imagine. You see that in the Bible right throughout. Joseph's dream for himself was a dream of superiority. He dreamed that his whole family would bow down to him as if he were ki a king. But God's dream for Joseph was one of servanthood. Yes, God's elevated Joseph to the high position of prime minister. Yes, Joseph's family bowed down to him after 22 years later when they came to buy grain from Egypt. And so is Hannah. The same is true for Hannah. Hannah had a dream. Her dream was to have a son who would remove the grief and shame that she felt from being barren. But she also realized that God had a bigger dream. What that dream was, I'll tell you later part of the sermon. So who was Hannah? To begin with, Hannah was married to a good man by the name of Elkanah. 
Elkanah is from a distinguished family. It says it's from the tribe of Levite. So it's from a priestly family in that time. He also must be fairly well off because he had two wives. We don't know who was the first one, uh, Hannah and Peninnah. Most scholars believe that Hannah was the first wife, but because she was barren, and therefore Peninnah was the second wife. But it is it said that Elkanah loved Hannah very much. But in a day when the success of your farm depended on having children, in a day when your future security depending on having children to take care of you in old age, in a day when passing on your name to future generations was important, not having children was a big deal. And so when Hannah didn't have children, Elkanah, as was the custom of the day, probably took a second wife, Panina, in order to create a large family. And true enough, Panina has many kids. Hannah means gracious or favored. It was Elkanah's favorite, his first love and a joy of his life. And he demonstrated that he really loves Hannah. Every year they'll go to Shiloh, a place to worship and offer sacrifice. And he will feed his family, but come to Hannah, he will give double portions of the food. You know, just like Asian, we love to feed people, isn't it? You know? Whether you have finished your food, whether how how much full you you know how full you are, they still put food you know. Especially when you're the youngest one, they they have to clean up everything on the table. Uh, that is not the case here. But Alcana loved Hannah so much that she always provide her double portion every year. Although Hannah is favored in Elkanah's side, nevertheless her financial security is 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 an issue. With no children, when Elkanah dies, probably all of his inheritance will go to Panina and her children. And at that point, Hannah will be a widow on the street with no means of support. Panina, the second wife, let's say that he's the second wife, on the other hand, means fertile or prolific. And it fits because she has many children and her future is secure. But another thing about Panina that Bible tells us is that she's very vindictive. Maybe she's jealous of Elkanah, shows so much love to Hannah. She likes to torment Hannah because of her childlessness. And perhaps it's just plain jealousy, but it may also be our human nature to look down on others who don't have as much as we do. We treat life as a competition and if I have more than you then I must be better than you we look down on people and think our good fortune is due to our own efforts and others bad fortune is due to their own effort due to their own fault neither of which is true one year everything came to a head because Hannah has been enduring this for many years Panina has been tormenting Hannah with little digs all the time. They have been in Shiloh to worship the Lord. And finally, on the big day of the worship feast, Hannah breaks down and she begins to weep. It's a very awkward moment for everyone around the table. 
Elkanah tries to comfort his wife, but he is kind of clueless. Most men are clueless in comforting women. We always try to look for solution, isn't it? Sometimes women just need a listening ear. But men are so good in finding solution for everything. And, uh, and the best counseling method is always listening. When you don't know what to say, listen. It's better to let people think that you are a fool than to open your mouth and confirm it. <laughs> so Elkanah said something that is very strange. When he saw Hannah weeping, he tried to comfort Hannah. And he said, why do you weep? Am I not more to you than ten sons? As if that does help. I thought, I find that phrase very strange. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Shouldn't it be, are you not more to me than ten sons? As I said, they are clueless. Of course, as anyone who has dealt with the profound pain of infertility knows, all words are insufficient. No amount of words can, can, can comfort sometimes. So the best way is to learn to listen and let the Holy Spirit do the work. Perhaps it would, be, it would have been better for Elkanah to say nothing, to go for a walk or, or to just give a cuddle or just provide arms around her and provide her some comfort and weep together with her. So Hannah sat through the feast of the night with red eyes staring off into the distance while turning inward in her thoughts. She distanced herself emotionally from her pain for a moment with her family. Only after dinner did she escape to the tabernacle, the temple, and then she just poured out her hearts to the Lord. And Hannah's prayers is described in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. Let me just show you some of these words and shows you how intense was her sadness. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, Eli was a priest in the temple, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish or greatly distress, see how many times it's appeared there, okay? I highlighted it for you. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Let me skip verse 11. I'll come back to that. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. See the intensity of the words? 
And then Eli pronounced a blessing on Hannah after she explained that, after seeing her devotion. And she just simply said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She was deeply distressed. She wept bitterly. And many other words that come out to tell you that she is really, really in pain and suffering for so many years with Panina keep on poking at her. Tony Evans, one an American preacher, he said this in one of his books. He said, the worst turmoil of all often takes place in one's own soul. This happens when you can't seem to live with yourself, when your own pain, anxiety, depression, and regret eat you up, leaving you with an unsettled ache. You are at war within. Most of the worst turmoil of all is you experience within your own heart. And that is why Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man who scaled Mount Everest, once said that it is not a mountain we conquer, but ourselves. It's easier to conquer mountain than to conquer yourself. And many people suffer from depression or anxiety in this culture, probably one of the most livable cities in the world. How ironic that is, isn't it? That the pantry is full, but the heart is empty. So much to live on, but so little to live for. Having anxiety and depression is like being scared and tired at the same time, as they say. It's the fear of failure, but no urge to be productive. It is wanting friends, but hating to socialize. It's wanting to be alone, but not wanting to be lonely. It's caring about everything, then caring about nothing. It's feeling everything at once, and then feeling paralyzingly numb. Or someone say, I want to take a nap, but I'm not tired or sleepy. I just don't want to awake. My forest is dark. The trees are sad. And all the butterflies have broken wings. Or they say depression is being colorblind and constantly told how colorful the world is. There are wounds that never show on the body but they are, they are deeper and more hurtful than anything that bleeds. Robin Williams committed suicide, died a number of years ago, and he said, all it takes is a beautiful fake smile to hide an injured soul, and they will never notice how broken you really are. But of course, life is a combination of happiness and pain, but pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. There are times when explanation, no matter how reasonable and logical, they just don't seem to help. And so here, you can see that Hannah seems to be experiencing all this kind of pain because for so many years, she has been wanting to have a child, but she was left barren. So her prayer that I've just read to you, first and foremost, it was very, very intense. Very intense. 
Secondly, I'll return back to verse 11. I think her prayer is not just very intense. Her prayer was completely dedicated to the Lord. She was completely dedicated in her prayer. Verse 11 says this, When she was bitterly weeping and praying, she made a vow to the Lord saying this, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. There are two things that he mentioned, she mentioned in this prayer that she was so dedicated to. First and foremost, the last bit of it, he said, no razor will ever be used on his head. This is known in the Bible as a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was a special promise that people of God sometimes made to dedicate themselves totally to the Lord. Ordinarily, it was a certain length of time, could be just days, could be weeks, or could be months, or maybe for a year. And during that time, the person who made the vow would not drink any alcohol or cut their hair. That is what they, so that that entire time, they just devoted focusing in, to the Lord for some issues. And at the end of the vow, they offered a sacrifice at the place of worship, cut their hair, and then returned back to normal life. The vow was a promise, but this vow that Hannah made to God, that if you give me a son, he said, no razor will ever be used on his head. That means to say, she actually made a vow to the Lord that it will, be, it will be forever. It will be forever. That this child that you give to me will be completely dedicated to your service, not for a period of time. And of course, uh, the person who took the vow in the Old Testament, very famous one, is Samson. And so when Hannah made this vow on behalf of her desired son, she was dedicating him to the Lord for all of his life. All of her life. And therefore she said this, You give me a son and I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Hannah was unselfish in her prayer request because she had a bigger purpose than just her own happiness to have a son to, to, to go against uh, Penina or something like that. Because, I tell you what, that's, that's where the context comes in. Why I say that Hannah was unselfish in her prayer to the Lord in dedicating to have a child, not just for her own sake, for her own uh, old age or something like that. It's not just for that alone. She has a larger purpose in mind. Because at that time, God's people were in bad shape. The people were not united either in their self-defense nor in the dedication of the Lord. And the book of Samuel came between two era. The judges era and the uh, Kingdom era. You know, in Old Testament, there are nine eras. If you want to know the flow of uh, uh, Old Testament, you just need to remember nine words. Then you can trace the flow of the Old Testament. There's creation, 
and then Patriot, and then Exodus, and then Conquest, that's where they enter the land. And then after Conquest, when they have the land, they were ruled by Judges. And after Judges, the rule for 400 years is entered into Kingdom Era, and then Exile, and then Silence. Nine eras. So the period of Samuel is between Judges era and the Kingdom era. They were ruled by Judges, but it's coming to an end because the child is going to be Samuel. He's going to anoint two kings, Saul and David. So it's, it's a transition time from Judges to rule by king. So it was a terrible time for the nation of Israel. At the end of the book of Judges, after describing some intertribal between all of the Israel and Benjamin, this is what, end of Judges, okay, before Samuel, this is what it was described about that time. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. So that was the environment at that time. It was a time of anarchy and insecurity. You can do whatever you want, which is our current modern way of operation, isn't it? Because there's no more absolute truth. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. Truth is relative. And therefore, everyone did as they saw fit. You define your own morality. You define what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. So it was a time of anarchy and insecurity. At the same time that this was happening, the worship God at the tabernacle was being corrupted. Eli has two sons. You're going to read through the remaining part of chapter 2, chapter 3. They're horrible children. They're supposed to be priests, but they're horrible. They're sleeping around with other women who help, and then who help with the worship and who dishonor the Lord by taking the best parts of the sacrifices for themselves. So the nation was in terrible shape. It was, they, they needed a strong leader, one who could unite their defenses, one who could reform their corrupt worship practices, and one who could prepare the way for the coming king. So when Hannah prayed, that was part of what she was asking for, not just only for her selfish reason of securing her future and, and all the kind of stuff that comes along with shame of not having a child. Hannah had that in mind. Hannah prayed for a son to revive the truth in Israel. And she gave her son back to God. She said, use this. If you give me the son, I'm going to dedicate this boy, this child to you. So that this particular one can be the one that will steal back the nation of Israel for you. They had been turning away from God. The light was going out. And so Hannah's prayer was for a son, for a seed of a man to restore that light and to bring salvation to Israel. God answered her prayers, we know, and gave her a son whom she named Samuel. And if you read the rest of the book of Samuel, you will see how pivotal, how important Samuel was to the history of Israel. He anointed two kings, King Saul and King David. And through Hannah's prayer, God raised up a great leader who undid corruption in the worship, defeated the Philistine enemies of Israel, and eventually anointed the greatest king of Israel, 
King David. And it was King David who was responsible for Israel's golden era and the establishment of Jerusalem as its capital city. And without Samuel, there would never be King David. And without King David, there would never have been down the line of Jesus. And then after that, uh, Hannah prayed, she had peace, she went back, joined the families. And after some time she conceived, she had a child, gave birth, Samuel. And she went to the temple and dedicated Samuel and allowed Samuel to live in the temple. Despite of the corruption of the temple, she still trusts the Lord to use Samuel for her glory. And then Hannah made a prayer to God. I want to show you the final verse of her prayer. This is the final verse of her prayer. This prayer, Hannah's prayer, has inspired uh, Mary's prayer, the Magnificat, during the Christmas time we will read about it. This is the final verse of her prayer. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the final bit of the prayer. He said he will give strength to his king because he's going to anoint King Saul and King David. But he's also make a prophecy and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Because the word anointed simply means Messiah. Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. Christ means the anointed one. As I always say, Christ is not Jesus' surname. Christ is a title. The anointed one, the Messiah who will come in the future to deliver us from sin and make a way for us to approach God. So he will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of the anointed. At the beginning of this sermon, I say Hannah's dream was to have son who would remove the grief and shame she felt from being barren. But she also realized that God had a bigger dream. That God is going to use her son, Samuel, to bring forth and anoint King David that will eventually lead down to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, my friend, Hannah was not just a bereaved woman who was longing for a son. She was also a visionary who saw a day when the Messiah would come to bring down the powerful and lift up the poor. Here was a big dream that God gave to her. That means that no matter how dark this world becomes, in the words of St. John, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Prayer has the ability to move us from darkness to light. Prayer has the ability to move us from a place of infertility to a place where one can conceive new life. When Hannah's prayer concludes, the scripture says that she was no longer sad. And as a matter of fact, she was able to go home to eat and drink with her husband and conceive a child. And believe it or not, she went on to conceive another six children. 
total of six children. And when Jesus' prayer concludes in the garden, he, is a different, he was in a different place, determined to walk the way of the cross. And the cross becomes a place of consummation, a place where Christ consummates new life for human being. Prayer has the ability to move us into new life. Rowan Williams, the late, I mean, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, he says that after prayer, in prayer, he said, your vision is clarified, your actions are gradually disciplined, the divine life slowly transforms you. Prayer is the life of Jesus coming alive in you. Prayer is the life of Jesus coming alive in you. Bear with me, I'll close with this story, and then we can have lunch together. I don't know how many of you heard of this story. It's been circulating around for a long time, called The Three Trees. It's a story about these three trees. They stood and dream of what they wanted to become when they grew up. And the first tree looked up at the stars, and then he said, you know, I want to hold treasure. I want to be covered with gold and filled with precious stones. I want to be the most beautiful treasure chest in the world. That's what I dream of becoming. And then the second tree looked out at a small stream trickling by on its way to the ocean. And the second tree said, no, I don't want to be a treasure chest. I want to be a traveling mighty waters and I want to be carrying powerful kings. I want to be the strongest ship in the world. Stronger than the Titanic, after Titanic sank, anyway. And then the third tree Look down into the valley below where busy men and women work in busy towns. And they say, ah, oh, no, I don't want to be, I don't want to leave this mountain top at all. I want to grow so tall that when people look at me, they'll raise their eyes to heaven and think of God. I want to be the tallest tree in the world. And then years pass, the rain came, the sun shone. And the little trees begin to grow taller. And one day, three woodcutters climb the mountain. And the first woodcutter look at the first tree and say, Wow, this tree is beautiful. It is perfect for me. With a sweep of his shining axe, the first tree fell. And then the first tree thought, Ah, now I shall be made into a beautiful chest. I shall be holding most wonderful treasure. And then the second woodcutter looked at the second tree and said, this tree is strong. It is perfect for me. With a swift of his shining axe, the second tree fell. And then the second tree thought, ah, now I shall sail mighty waters. Thought the second trees. I shall be a strong ship for mighty kings. The third tree felt her heart sink when the last woodcutter looked her way. 
she looked straight and tall and pointed bravely to heaven. But the woodcutter never even looked up. Any kind of tree would do for me, he muttered. And with a sweep of his shining axe, the third tree fell. The first tree rejoiced when the woodcutter brought her to a carpenter's shop. But the carpenter fashioned the tree into a feed box for animals. Oh, the once beautiful tree was not covered with gold nor with treasure. She was coated with sawdust and filled with hay for hungry farm animals. The second tree smiled when a woodcutter took her to a shipyard, but no mighty sailing ship was made that day. Instead, the one strong ship was hammered and saw into a simple fishing boat. She was too small and too weak to sail to an ocean or even a river. Instead, she was taken to a little lake. In Malay, they call Sampan. The third tree was confused when the woodcutter cut her into strong beams and just left her in the timber yard. What happened? The, the once tall tree wondered. All I ever wanted was to stay on the mountaintop and point to God. And so they went through this period of disillusionment. But many, many, many days and nights passed. The three trees nearly forgot their dreams. But one night, golden starlight poured into the first tree as a young woman placed her newborn baby in the feed box. I wish I could make a cradle for him, her husband whispered. The mother squeezed his hand and smiled as the starlight shone on the smooth and the sturdy wood. The manger is beautiful, she said. And suddenly, the first tree knew he was holding the greatest treasure in the world. And one evening, a tired traveler and his friends crowded into the old fishing boat. The traveler fell asleep as the second tree quietly sailed out into the lake. Soon, a thundering and thrashing storm arose. The little tree shuddered. She knew she did not have the strength to carry so many passengers safely through with the wind and the rain. The tired man awakened. He stood up, stretched out his hand, and said, Peace! The storm stopped as quickly as it had begun. And suddenly, the second tree knew he was carrying the king of heaven and earth. And one Friday morning, the third tree was startled when her beams were yanked from the forgotten wood pile. She flinched as she was carried through an angry, jeering crowd. She shuddered when soldiers nailed a man's hand to her. She felt ugly and harsh and cruel. But on Sunday morning, when the sun rose and the earth trembled with joy beneath her, the third tree knew that God's love had changed everything. It had made the third tree strong. And every time people thought of the third tree, they would think of God. That was better than being the tallest tree in the world. Lord, we thank you 
for this simple story of Hannah, that our dream for ourselves is never bigger than your dream for us. When you are in the picture, when you are in the picture, when you are in the equation, great dreams will fulfill in our lives. Doesn't mean there will be great men here on earth in a way that the world defines it. But it's everything will be great when you are in our picture, in our world. And I thank you for the story of Hannah that inspire us to pray, inspire us that things can come alive. I pray for anyone here this morning. They may be physically alive, but they are dead inside. I pray that your Holy Spirit will touch us and open our spiritual eyes that we may see the beautiful nature of who Jesus is and surrender our lives to him. And you can use us to fulfill greater things. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. As we sing this closing song again, Lord, we are reminded we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed. We are stewards. We are not owners. Use us for your glory. Amen.